Welcome to Family Room Discussions, where you invite me, Dalton Anderson, to your Come Follow Me study, and we discuss ideas, questions, and insights to the week's lesson. I am not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I am your average saint seeking to build my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures, and I have found that by discussing Come Follow Me with others, it helps me to do just that. My sincere hope is that you will allow me to join in your gospel dialogue. With that introduction, let's start this family room discussion. Sisters and brothers, family and friends, this is episode 29, following along with I Will Lead You Along, Doctrine and Covenants, section 77 to 80. And it is just, it's been a great week, and I'm really excited to be able to do this podcast. I don't know, this week's just different. Feels different, feels good, and I'm just extremely excited to be able to talk about this lesson. So, let's get into it. Less than two years after the Church of Jesus Christ was restored, it had grown to over 2,000 members and was spreading quickly. Now, I want to stop there because when you think about that, that's insane. It's been two years, growing over 2,000 members. Obviously, basic math, that's 1,000 members a year, but uh, it, didn't, it didn't grow just you know like that. It was an exponential growth, and especially as missionary work started to, uh, got kicked off, uh, those, the presence of the church obviously was growing at a faster and faster rate. But, but you think about that. I cannot, okay, when I, I ran for a student body uh, president when I was a sophomore in high school. And the way my high school was set up was that uh, you start high school as a sophomore, not a freshman. So freshman was middle school. And then you go and do sophomore year as your entry year. So I started, I ran for student body president, or not student body, excuse me, uh, sophomore class president. That's what it was. I ran for sophomore class president as, as a sophomore. And I don't think, and let me think, there was a what? 3,000 kids in the high school and probably 1,000 in my sophomore class. And I'd be shocked if I got even 100 people to vote for me. And I did the whole campaigning. We did the signs and uh, wore T-shirts and all of that. Did, did all the campaigning stuff you do. And I could not convince even 100 people. And I definitely knew more than 100 people in my high school at that time, Um a lot of kids could carry it over from middle school and stuff. And uh, the kid I was running against, great guy. and uh, But he had come from a different middle school. And so I was like, sweet, we'll be able to split the vote <laughs> that way. Uh, you know, he'll take his middle school, I'll take my middle school. Nope, my middle school voted for him. And so I bring this up to say, I've had experiences in my life where you have to convince people, right? Uh, convince people of something. This was convincing people of a religion, a new religion, not just uh, an offshoot of the Catholic Church or, or a different religious sect. It wasn't like that. This is a completely new, uh, you know, bringing back the church that Christ set up on the earth. And we've got 2,000 people who have, who have bought in, so to speak. They've bought into this new gospel. That blows my mind that in two years, they're already at 2,000 people. Uh, I mean, if you tried to start a religion right now, just you make up your own stuff or whatever, you could even have your own book if you wanted, go and try and convince even a hundred people to join you. I bet you can't even convince your family to join you. And so I say that to say, truly the the, the growth in the church at this point was astounding. It's, it, it blows me away. So anyway, pretty cool. In March, 1832, Joseph Smith met with other church leaders to discuss church business, the need to publish revelations, purchase land to gather on and carry and care for the poor. To meet these needs, the Lord called on a small number of church leaders to form the United Firm, a group that would join their efforts to advance the cause of the Lord in these areas. 
But even in such administrative matters, the Lord focused on the things of eternity. Ultimately, the purpose of a printing press or a storehouse, like everything else in God's kingdom, is to prepare his children to receive a place in the celestial world and the riches of eternity. I want to stop there again to say, sometimes I lose I lose sight of this, especially in our day-to-day things. There's so many things that, uh, you know, by keeping the commandments and doing our church callings and taking care of our families and providing for the poor and the needy, and, and you, you go through this list, right? And we talk about don't do checklists and, and don't mark the boxes and stuff, but just from an administrative uh, standpoint, there are a lot of list-based things uh, when it comes to being a saint and, and going through, and it can be overwhelming. And for me, what I need to remember to do, and, and hopefully this helps you as you think about this, to slow things down, to recognize that this is all for a purpose, an, an eternal purpose. The things that stress us out right now, the things day to day, I can think of seven things just today that I was stressed out about. I got an assignment today uh, at work about needing to write this email for this event that's happening and it needed to go out today. And uh, I mean, this is what I do for a living. I do this day to day. I create emails and newsletters and things to be able to inform the company that I work for of you know a piece of information that we get from either internal or ex- external. And then I take that and I craft it into a message that is easy to understand. You can get all the details quickly. It doesn't waste your time. But I have to do that for hundreds of messages. And quite frankly, some of them are a complete waste of time, but that's my job. My job is to make it so it's not a waste of, of uh, my associate's time. And yet when I stop and, and think through the day of why am I so stressed? Does any of this really matter? Now, of course it matters because it's to help feed my family. But in an eternal perspective, I can step back and recognize that the stress of today will be meaningless when it's all said and done. You know, the, the real thing is, is am I being a better person today? Am I helping people? Am I becoming closer to Christ? Am I focusing on what matters? And I think sometimes we get into this thought process. I know I certainly do. I don't know about you. I get in this thought process where I'm going through all the motions. I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, I've got to do X, Y, and Z. I've got this checklist of, and I'm not even talking about gospel things. I'm talking about just day-to-day things that I have to accomplish. If I do not accomplish them, then I'm in big trouble for tomorrow. And as I go through these temporal matters, and I stop and I'm like, does any of this actually even matter? And of course it does, because I want to be able to give a good account to, to the Lord, ultimately, but also to those that I'm accountable to, to my boss, to my to my wife. I need to make sure that I'm accounting to her, that I'm working hard and actually trying to uh, provide for our family in a way that helps us to, to grow our family in a sustainable way. Uh, these things do matter. And this week in particular, I stopped, uh, and it was because of this lesson, I stopped and recognized that it's a good thing to be uh, in the day-to-day stresses, right? Sometimes it feels like it can be overwhelming and we need to take a break and take take those breaks when you need them, but also get back into it because this is all training ground. This life is a training ground to become uh, to become a God and to do and, and be able to handle the things that Heavenly Father handles. And when I think about what He has to deal with, uh, billions of trillions of countless numbers of children on countless planets that He has created, uh, countless uh, of our brothers and sisters who are going through the plan of salvation right now, and he accounts for all of us. He knows exactly where we're at uh, and what we're going through, and and he's there for us, and he loves us, and it's got to be the most stressful job in the world. And so this is a training ground. Do not um, 
take for granted the stresses you're going through. This is, this is a thought that occurred to me over and over again is don't, don't take it for granted. And, uh, and we all get stressed. We all have different stresses, you know, something that stresses me out probably wouldn't stress you out and vice versa. And, and that's where we can help each other. Uh, the, you know, as, as my friends come to me with their stresses and then it doesn't stress me out because obviously I'm not going through it. So it's a lot easier to be the person listening, but as I'm able to share in that burden and then I can unload some of my burdens, right? I can talk about the stresses I'm going through, which is not stressful to, for them, but it is for me. And as we share each other's burdens, we also help each other to draw closer to Christ. So don't, don't take for granted the stresses you're going through. This is helpful. This is helping. It is helping us all get closer to eternity and, uh, and I know life gets stressful, believe me, but don't take it for granted. And, f and then to conclude, and if those blessings are hard to comprehend right now in the midst of the busyness of daily life, like we just were talking about, he reassures us, be of good cheer for I will lead you along. And he certainly will. In the first section of, uh, of this lesson, God reveals his mysteries to those who seek to know them. Let me, let me turn my page with all my notes. So, uh, it says, 12 years after the first vision, the invitation in James 1.5 to ask of God continued to guide Joseph Smith when he lacked wisdom. When he and Sidney Rigdon had questions about the book of Revelation as they worked on the inspired translation of the Bible, Joseph naturally sought wisdom from God. As you read Doctrine and Covenants 77, consider recording uh, your insights in the relevant chapters in the book of Revelation, which I did. And there were a couple that stood out, uh, mostly principles actually from this. But let's turn to 77. And, uh, and go through some of the things that stood out to me, these principles. So first is in verse two, it says, question, what are we to understand by the four beasts spoken in the same verse? Answer, they are figurative expressions used by the revelator, John, in describing heaven, the paradise of God, the happiness of man and of beasts and of creeping things and of the fowls of the air, that which is spiritual being in the likeness of that which is temporal and that which is temporal in the likeness of that which is spiritual. The spirit of man in the likeness of his person is also the spirit of the beast and every other creature which God has created. Now first, Going through this section is, is, is pretty cool, and it is a guide for us. This is a guide of how we can go through the scriptures, the same thing. Now, we might not have the same uh, deep revelation that Joseph Smith received, where it was direct revelation from God uh, on a, a question-answer basis like this, but we certainly can follow the pattern and receive answers through the Holy Ghost, uh, and, and he will guide us in the same way, and we should be writing down the answers that we receive just as Joseph Smith recorded his answers from God. Um, so if there's verses or, of scripture or... or things that you don't understand, then immediately get on your knees and ask. That is the pattern. And I, I think, I know for me, I don't do that enough. And this was a great reminder to be doing that. That is the pattern. The other thing from verse two that I, uh, just something that got me thinking this week is that uh, we are in our likeness, right? Both spirit, spirit and uh, our physical bodies are in the likeness of our spirit and vice versa. And so a question I asked, and I asked this to my family this week was, do we look like the way we look right now is that the same way we looked in the pre-mortal life? And then continuing on, is the same way we look right now, the same way we're going to look after this life, after we're resurrected beings? Now, I think we get far more attractive after we're resurrected. I don't know. Uh, and, and maybe that's dependent on how we live this life, right? Like if we live worthy of celestial glory, then we are celestial, celestially attractive. Uh, but if we live terrestrial... of uh, worthy of terrestrial glory, and then we are terrestrially attractive. And so it's like, you know, someone who's celestial is 10 times more attractive than a terrestrial person. I don't know if that's true or not, and I, I don't think attractiveness necessarily matters in this case. However, um, the, the real question, the thing I want to get, that I was thinking about this week, and I ask you is, was the way we, is the way we look right now, 
how we look to spirit. Now, obviously, I think there were some obviously uh, grand similarities, but um, I mean, so much feels like it's it's also dependent on on genetics, right? Why is it that we look like our families? You know, why is it that you can see someone and you're like, yeah, that's definitely a an Anderson right there, or like in my wife's family, that's definitely a Tebs. You know, there's d distinct family characteristics. Now, obviously, we were organized in families before uh, we came down. I don't know if that's always holds true, but I'd imagine it probably does. That's definitely the rule of thumb. And so maybe that's true. But in my case, right, I'm half adopted. So then was it that I had to be, like that I was destined to be uh, half adopted? It was that a, my destiny, which I don't believe in determinism is the, like a, the philosophical belief of determinism that doesn't matter what you do because it's already determined before you do it. That goes against agency. So I don't believe in that. Um, I don't know, just, just a question to think about. And I posed it to, uh, to my family this week, got them thinking about it too. And none of us really came up with a, an answer. I don't think there needs to be an answer. Just something to be thinking about. And then in verse seven, uh, what are we to understand by the seven seals with which it, with which it was sealed? Talking about the book. Answer, are, we are to understand that the first seal contains the things of the first thousand years and the second also the second thousand years and, and so on until the seventh seal. So, then if our time in the book, we are at the end of the sixth seal. We are coming to the end. We don't know how close we are to the end. We just know we're at the end of the sixth seal. The seventh seal will begin uh, the thousand years in the millennial reign. And then in verse seven, or excuse me, verse 12, it says, what are we to understand by the sounding of the trumpets mentioned in the, ch in the eighth chapter of Revelation? Answer, we are to understand that as God made the world in six days, and on the seventh day he finished his work and sanctified it, and also formed man out of the dust of the earth. Even so, in the beginning of the 7,000 years, will the Lord God sanctify the earth and complete the salvation of man and judge all things and shall redeem all things except that which he shall not put into his power. And it goes on. Uh, I, but I've already read the part that stuck out to me, and it's because uh, it says, at the beginning of the seventh seal is when we receive judgment. Not the end of the seventh seal, but at the beginning, which kind of lit a fire under me because I was like, I don't know how close we are to the seventh seal, but at the, to the beginning of it. But if we're close to the beginning of the seventh seal and that's when judgment occurs, I would like to be in the best possible position of judgment. Uh, you know, it's not like I have the full thousand years, the full seventh seal, and then at the end I'm judged. I'm judged at the beginning. So I was like, ooh, light a fire and start repenting now and uh, and get prepared, which is, is obviously that is... The scriptures constantly, God is constantly telling us through the scriptures and through prophets to never procrastinate, right? Well, if you needed a fire, just know that if we are near the end of the sixth seal and it's the beginning of the seventh seal that uh, we receive judgment, then then you better get in gear because it's coming. Then in the second section, it says, what was the united firm? Uh, one thought that sticks out, I'll do it quick, but let's read it first. The united firm was established to manage the church's publishing and business affairs in Ohio and Missouri. It consisted of Joseph Smith, Nuke Whitney, and other church leaders who combined their resources to meet the temporal needs of the growing church. Unfortunately, the United Firm fell into debt and was dissolved in 1834 when the debts became unmanageable. Now, the part, uh, one, it failed. It failed, right? It says the United Firm fell into debt. To me, I'm going to just, I conclude that it failed. If it fell into debt, it failed. However, if you see, see also Newell K. Whitney and the United Order, uh, we're going to turn to that now. I'm going to read that first part because that's where this thought kind of stuck out. And I think this is, really good for us to be able to take away. It says, in April 1834, 
Newell K. Whitney, the bishop of the church in Kirtland, Ohio, and prominent businessman, forgave over $3,600 in debt. Now, I don't know how much that was in our time now, but I know that has to be a substantial sum. Uh, in debts owed to him by several individuals, including Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Oliver Cowdery. The debts had accumulated over two years as these men worked together in an administrative body called the United Firm to direct and finance the temporal operations of the church. Now, after two tumultuous years, the United Firm was to be dissolved. Joseph said it was the will of the Lord that the accounts be balanced in full without any value received, Whitney declared. Whitney then said he would do what Joseph asked. Okay, there are two options that, uh, that Newell K. Whitney had here. I think they're, to me, they're blatantly obvious. Number one, he could say that Joseph Smith was a liar and cheated him and that the whole thing was false. He, he could have done that, right? Uh, I think it's easy from a worldly perspective to say that here he gave money and uh, for whatever reason, it failed. This, this United or, uh, firm, it failed and he was left to, to receive nothing. He received nothing back in return, financially speaking. That is one option, and that is typically the option that I think we observe a lot of the time. But then there was option two, and this is what he did. Whitney declared, or Whitney then said, excuse me, Whitney then said that he would do what Joseph asked. So I looked up um, more about uh, Newell K. Whitney after this experience, because I wanted to see, like I, I told you this, that I look up the names of, uh, of church history especially uh, ones that I've forgotten if I even knew what happened to them. So I looked him up. He remained a faithful member all his life. He died in Utah. And, uh, and I, I, I think this is the lesson I learned. This is what I wanted to share with you right now. It is easy to look at this life through a logical lens, which is that uh, the natural man tells us this life is to be lived comfortably. We are to avoid injury to ourselves. We are to avoid pain. We are to avoid experiences that would um, cause us any discomfort. That's that's what the natural man says. It is natural for us to fight against those things, Um, which, which honestly just means that it's natural for us to fight against faith. Now, I think if we could live in a way like Newell K. Whitney did, if we could understand this principle, we might be looked and we might be mocked by doing this. You know, it would be easy to say, oh, you're such a, a fool, Brother Whitney. You're such a, a chump. You got played and all these things. But imagine what his reward is in heaven because he sacrificed for the Lord. Not It wasn't about sacrificing for Joseph Smith or Sidney Rigdon or Oliver Cowdery. It wasn't, it wasn't even necessarily about sacrificing for the church. He gave what he had to the Lord, and it didn't matter the outcome. Too often we get so caught up in the outcome. It's like, I will have faith if the outcome was what I wanted it to be. I will go on a mission if I have X amount of baptisms and if I see conversion happen. I will uh, pay tithing as long as I see temporal blessings come to me, as long as my family increases in its wealth. Uh, I will have children as long as the children are, are perfectly happy and obedient and and X, Y, Z, we, we, we can play this game with every single commandment that we're given. But the Lord would have us, and this is the experience that this is what life is about. This is what, the, this is what mortality is set up to do. It is to push us, to test us, to get us to the point of pure obedience, where it does not matter if we receive the outcome that we would like. As long as we have faith that the outcome was what the Lord expected, 
That's all that matters. And it's tough. I'm not there. I don't even pretend that I'm there. There There's so many times where I'm super frustrated because I'm like, I had faith. I did exactly what I thought I was supposed to do. And I did not get the outcome I wanted. And then the Lord has to, you know, take me through this humbling process and help me see this and and then it'll something new will happen and I'll be like, okay, I'm going to do it right this time. And then I don't. And I kind of keep bashing my head along the way as I'm trying to, to learn this principle. This principle is so important and you need to learn it in your life right now. We all do. True obedience often will mean doing things that logically and especially to the world's, to the world's eyes do not make sense. I mean, that that's the lesson. That's 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 the lesson of obedience. It's the covenant we entered into a baptism. And it's one of the toughest lessons, in my opinion. In my opinion, one of the toughest lessons, the fact that we go through obedience, we go through faith, and then things happen, and we look like we got egg on our face. And that's when we have to get on our our knees and ask God, is this really what you wanted? Because it doesn't feel like, (laughs) it doesn't appear like that's what was supposed to happen. And as long as we acted in faith, Two things will happen. Number one, you will receive an answer. Not necessarily right away. There have been many times for me it didn't come right away. But I always have received an answer. Um, honestly, in particular, I remember one from my mission. There was something about my mission that occurred. It was it's, it's pretty close to the chest, so I don't really want to share it at this time. But there was an experience that happened where I felt like I had acted in faith uh, at a time on my mission, and, and something didn't occur the way I thought it would. Um with my own personal development. I, th- I thought I would receive a blessing that that I really wanted. And it, it never happened. My entire mission never happened. And it was three years after my mission. And I had asked a lot of times, both on the mission and after the mission. And I finally just kind of stopped at, stopped asking and figured one day I would receive the answer. And I remember I was, I was in bed. It was like 1130 at night. And I was falling asleep. And just all of a sudden, my mind lit up, and I had just this super clear uh, information flowing straight to me. And I saw exactly what the Lord expected. I, I knew that I had indeed received blessings, not the way I thought, and especially like the world would never understand, which was the hardest part for me. Uh, the world would never understand the blessings I had had received out of faithfulness and obedience. Um and that was also a, hum- a humbling factor too, by the way. Uh, I, I'll admit to you, I wanted the world to be able to see that I had received a, a particular blessing from my mission and, and it didn't happen. But I knew for me, and so I can promise you received the blessings. And I, I said it would be a short thought and it clearly wasn't, but I think it's a very important thought because uh, if we cannot learn this lesson about obedience, then we are going to struggle figuring out a lot of other lessons when it comes to the principle of obedience, which everything's predicated upon. We'll read that at 1.30. So anyway, all right, next section. I can help advance the cause of the church. Uh, the Lord told Joseph Smith and the other church leaders that managing a storehouse and printing press would help advance the cause which he have espoused. What would you say is the cause of the church? That's an excellent question, actually. What is the cause of the church? What are we doing? Uh, for me, I believe that it's to, to help us to be able to, to come to Christ. I believe it's to help us to understand our whole purpose. Why are we here? What are we doing? Where are we going? I believe that's the purpose of the church because that's everything that it points to. It helps me to understand eternity and and ultimately what all this is for. And sometimes, like I said, it would feel meaningless if I didn't have the answers that we have. Uh, Let's go to verse, or excuse me, section 78. 
and verse 5 and 6. In 5, that you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, in earthly things also for the obtaining of heavenly things. For if you are not equal in earthly things, you cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. Uh, the Lord expects us to, to help each other, to seek each other's betterment, even sometimes at our own personal sacrifice or, or often our own personal sacrifice. Uh, I definitely know that's true because of being a parent. There are so many times where I do things that I don't want to do. The basic being changing a diaper. Uh, you, you, you guys probably don't struggle with this, but I certainly do. Changing a diaper is like one of the worst experiences ever, especially as your kids get old enough where like they know that it's a miserable experience for you. Like for instance, Maggie, we're potty training her right now. We're going through... Uh, the face. Flynn is, has been potty trained for a while and it's just so glorious when your kids can take care of themselves. And, uh, but we're potty training Maggie, but changing her diapers, right? Just before. If you've, if you've been around Maggie, then you know that she, she, she can talk pretty good. Like she's able to, to form sentences and share ideas and thoughts. And a lot of it's still gibberish and stuff, but for the most part, she's actually able to share thoughts pretty well. And it is so frustrating that she's able to do that. She has these capabilities. And yet, then still has me change her her disgusting diaper. And uh, anyway, that that example to say that, <laughs> that the Lord expects us to sacrifice for for other each other's well-being. Now, hopefully it's not, you know, needing to change one another's diapers. However, it certainly could be. But uh, that is something as disciples that we need to be doing. And we should be doing this number one in our homes. How are we sacrificing for one another in our homes? Is it, is it just where one person's doing all the chores and and everyone just allows them to do that so we can all be able to be com comfortable ourselves and not others? Typically, you see this in families where uh, the mom ends up doing all the, the the dishes and the vacuuming and the cleaning and, and, and you just see kids sitting around on their phones or playing video games or whatever. And uh, it's always super frustrating for me. I've been guilty of the same thing. And yet then when I observe it, I'm like, I don't want to be like that. I want to help. And houses where the chores are shared, where the responsibilities are shared and stuff, those are happy and uh, Zion-like homes. And and you see true joy and true, the, like the spirit resides in those types of homes. So if your home's not like that, and I know I certainly need to be better in my own home of, of sharing more of the brunt of the burdens, because Lex does so much in our home. I have no problem admitting that. She does so much. And uh, I have many areas where I need to step up. And so I commit to stepping up to create that Zion-like home. I'm sure Lex is listening to this just being like, yeah, we'll see. In verse 7, it says, For if you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing the things which I have commanded you and required of you. Um, this is the other thing that I think that I was really thinking about. It goes back to that that same thought just before, talking about New K. Whitney, is that, uh, you know, actually... I don't know if you've ever listened to Dave Ramsey. He's he's this uh, financial advisor. Um, he has like a radio show and stuff. And, and I remember being in middle school and that was my financial literacy class. I kid you not. It was just based off uh, of his, of Dave Ramsey's teachings. But he has this saying that I really like, and I'm going to butcher it. I should have looked it up before to know exactly what it was. But uh, the, the principle will still remain. But he says, to live like no one else, you need to live like no one else. Now, in his in the financial realm, he's talking about, you know, you need to to budget, to save, to not just buy things off of credit, all these things, right? Like, don't be like everyone else. And in the same way, in a celestial realm, that's the same thing. To live a celestial life, it means living like no one else lives. You cannot live like you're, like all those around you. 
Okay. So just because you see everyone else doing it, even members, just because you see other members doing something doesn't mean you just get to measure against that bar because God's bar of celestial glory is, uh, is pretty strict. And while he is extremely merciful and extremely graceful, he's not going to change the rules. Uh, of the game for you to be able to get there. No one just sneaks into heaven or celestial glory, so to speak. So but what I've been thinking about is like, how am I living right now? What areas of my life am I living that I need to change? And and what are the the biggest things first to tackle? You know, there, there are definitely the small things I could think of right away, but what are the big ones, the big ones that I'm not living in the in the way I should be? How can I be living like no one else is living to be able to have celestial glory. And then in the final section, uh, the call to serve God matters more than where I serve. And I love the talk by Elder Bednar that he gave about this, and that's kind of what it's based off of. But uh, from my own personal experience, and I am going to relate it to the mission, but I could also do it to to callings as well. Uh, for my mission, I can be honest, I did not want to go to Mississippi. When I read the call, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. One, I was like, where in, I knew it was in the South, but I was like, where is Mississippi? So I did have to look up for a map. And then um, I remember thinking, I kid you not, I thought my mission was uh, was going to be on the river. Like I thought that the way that we would do tracting, I, this is so bad. I just thought everyone lived on a swamp. That's what I thought. I thought every house was set up on a swamp, kind of like in Princess and the Frog, uh, but when they're actually in the bayou, not like the New Orleans town they're in. That's what I thought. That was my like idea of what Mississippi was, um, which shows how naive I was and also how uncultured I was. And uh, yeah, I knew nothing about the South. And I, I, all I remember thinking was I was super frustrated that I got called stateside. I did not want to serve a stateside mission. I was also super bummed I wasn't going to learn a language. I was going to speak English. And, and that was it. And so uh, other blessings did accompany it. And, and I remember talking to my dad, especially right after the call and said, it's crazy because I do feel this love for a people I've never met before. That was really cool. That was a cool experience. But there was also this this deep frustration of like, why? Why did I get called here? And all my friends, it felt like we're getting called to super cool foreign places, you know, and they were speaking languages and everyone was going to speak, you know, a foreign language, but not not me, not not Dolan. And that was frustrating. And I had to learn this lesson. And uh, and honestly, I, I still, to this day, um, I think there are still things that I'm like, why Mississippi? Now, not in the uh, the same way that I asked it when I started, when I started my mission of why Mississippi, because... I did love my mission, and I do love my mission. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I can easily say that, and if you've ever heard me in person talk about my mission, I'm sure you've heard all the the worst experiences first. I always start with the worst experiences because those are the most memorable. You know, Those are the things that change me and, uh, and turn me into a saint. Those are the things that really made me converted. I had to, to prove my mettle, prove my worth. And so they're the most meaningful to me. I was actually just talking about Trey and Teb, my brother-in-law, last night about this. Same thing, that our hardest experiences and our worst experiences are often the ones that uh, are the most sacred to us, which was certainly true in my mission. But the other thing about about learning this lesson is that uh, it it really didn't matter. I think I could have served anywhere, honestly. And I I would have gone through the same things that I went through as far as experiences I, I experienced homesickness and I experienced uh, the loneliness that comes even though you have someone with you 24-7. I experienced companions that I wanted to kill and that wanted to kill me. And I, I experienced all these things. So I don't know if it mattered necessarily where I served. 
Uh, one obvious blessing that came was that I did end up meeting my wife. Of course, didn't know that at the time, but that was a blessing. I don't know if we both needed to go to Mississippi for that, but but now we have this shared thing because of it. But at the end of the day, I met family in Mississippi and Louisiana. Like I met genuine family, people that I love and will love the rest of my life that I still keep in touch with. And uh, that's both investigators and members and and missionaries. Uh, There are people who are with me to this day and will go with me to eternity. Now, did I need to go to Mississippi for that? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess so because they were there, obviously. Um, Would I have met, would I have had the same experience had I gone anywhere? Yeah, I think so. I think I would have met family anywhere uh, because we're all in an eternal family together. But for whatever reason, God knew that my genetic and spiritual makeup needed to go to the South uh, for, for whatever reason. And so it really doesn't matter where you serve or what you're called to do. Like I said, I'm currently called right now to be the youth Sunday school teacher. And I've only taught once and I love it. I, I think the youth are, you know, I, I've told you this before, you've heard this before, but I get really frustrated with some of, some of the youth of our day. And of, of course, it's like that classic, you know, just like adults, I'm sure got frustrated with, with me and looked back at me and been like, he's not going to turn around and amount to much. And then here I am and still proving them right. But uh, just talking to them blew my mind. It truly did blow my mind. When I asked them, what are your expectations? And the first thing out of their mouth was, was the spirit. And it wasn't, it wasn't fake. It wasn't just the primary answer type stuff where it's like, we're saying it because we need to say it or we have to say it. Like it was genuine. They genuinely were like, we don't want to waste our time at church. We want to feel the spirit here. And I was like, I mean, that's the answer, right? And not just a, yeah, that's what you're supposed to say. Like they felt it. I could feel that they wanted it, right? They had that expectation on me as a teacher. And I was like, am I going to do what I need to do and do my part to help you feel the spirit? Am I going to waste your time by not coming prepared and all these things, right? And, uh, it's just the coolest experience, right? Now, do I need to be a Sunday school teacher right now to be able to feel that? I don't know. I guess so. Like, am, am I glad I get to be one? Absolutely. I love it. But but does it really matter necessarily the calling? I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. I don't think it matters what you... All that matters is that you're magnifying and doing your best with what you were given at the time. Um, and the worst thing we could do is compare ourselves to others or have expectations of like, why am I not this? Why am I not here? Why am I not doing this? Because then we totally fail to see what God is doing with us personally. The reason you're not in X calling or living in Y place or having Z lifestyle is because God is dealing with you on an individual basis. If you truly believe that God loves you, if you truly believe he cares about you, then you also have to have faith in the fact that he knows exactly what you need. And what you need is probably not what you think you want right now. Uh, That's... Like, isn't that the lesson we learned as teenagers, right? And then we grow up and we're like, oh yeah, I definitely didn't want that. Same thing as adults. We're still learning the lesson now and we need to constantly be humble. Best way to do that is by being grateful, by showing gratitude. So those are all the thoughts I had. I've been thinking about a lot this week and, and I know that's uh, it's kind of all over the place, but I mean, it wouldn't be an ADD uh, discussion with Dolan if, if, if it were super linear. But uh, excited for next week. I'm gonna have uh, Quaden. Quaden is going on a mission. He uh, gave his farewell address, and he's all ready to go. So we're, we're going to the temple this week with him for him to receive his endowments. I'm very excited for him, and he will be my special guest next week before he leaves. 
And what I'm most excited about is see, to see the change, because I'm going to ask him when he gets home in two years uh, to also be a special guest then, assuming we're still doing this in, <laughs> in two years. Who knows? But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see kind of that, that two-year change. So, uh, again, that's all I got. So thank you for joining me in this family room discussion. Uh, what ideas, questions, or insight did you have from Doctrine and Covenants 7, or, excuse me, 77 to 80? Until we meet again, have a blessed week.